Our reading from Scripture tonight is taken from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. John the Baptist prepares the way. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. It is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John came, baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. As Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the desert, and he was in the desert for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and the angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Thank you, Paul, and thanks very much for inviting me to come and share with you again. Um, yeah, after 27 years, we've been here in Solihull, and um, 20 years in church leadership. Um, but I was 65 just before Christmas, and we, Sarah encouraged me to take more definite steps to retire. To retire. How successful that will prove, we have yet to see. But, uh, so part of the plan is to go to Tewkesbury, where um, one of our sons lives. So, um, you know, when you've been in, ch- in church leadership, there, there, you know, sometimes your head can be just full of church stuff. Um, there's always meetings, there's always talks, there's always people... Uh, and there's everything that's involved in running a church, just like any other organisation, isn't it? I remember having been in business in my life, I was surprised how many things in church were like in business. You still had budgets, you still had to recruit people, you still had to do staff appraisals. I thought, oh, oh, I wasn't quite expecting this. I thought it was going to be really spiritual, and now I'm doing all this stuff that I was, uh, I was doing in my business career. And, and I, I think I can remember sometimes where you sort of sit down and you think, just where is Jesus in this? Just where is Jesus in this? 
because he is what our faith is about. He is what our faith is about. And um, I kind of promised myself at Christmas that in laying down kind of church responsibilities and tasks and so on, I would give more time to thinking about Jesus. What does Jesus mean to me? It's not enough, I felt, as it were, just to believe in him or even to study him, but to love him. Do I love him? What does it mean to love him? To love him. So this line of thought was encouraged because in in the home group we go to, we've been watching the film of St. Matthew's Gospel for the last couple of months. So this is... um, a word-for-word rendition of Matthew's Gospel. You know, the entire dialogue is just straight from Matthew's Gospel, but it's acted out. And it's rather a good, it's rather a good um, film to watch. We watch, you know, like a couple of chapters a week. But the, 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 the actor who plays Jesus plays him in quite a striking way. He, he somehow gets across the the compassion of Christ. And if I was to say that it makes you feel he was lovable as well as loving, um, it's typified in, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says some quite tough things to people. And you can read them off the text and you think, you know, I'm glad he didn't say that to me or I hope he wouldn't say that to me. But, But sometimes it's portrayed that he says something very tough to somebody by putting his arm around their shoulder and saying the words quite quietly to them. And it's, you think, oh, I hadn't interpreted it like that. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds a bit more you know, uh, assertive. But he, he, he plays the character in, a, in, I found, a quite wonderful and helpful way. And that has also prompted me to think a bit more, well, what was Jesus like? Um, and particularly to try to understand him within his sort of historical context. You know, what, what was it like when he was on the earth as a man? How did his contemporaries see him? Because it's, it's very easy just to come to the Gospels with a, what you might call our post-Easter Christian faith and, and interpret it all through that perspective. But that's what, no, it's not how Jesus was seen when he was on the earth. I'll explain a bit more about that in a moment. Um, but to, to see him within the kind of context of his time and the perceptions of his time. And even when you start to think about that, you, it sounds a little bit facetious of me, you know, but if you put a group of average Christians in a room, not that I'm suggesting that you're average Christians, you, know, you put a group of average Christians in a room and you say, well, what words would you use to describe Jesus? You know, they sit there and they think and then somebody would say loving, wouldn't they? They would say loving or they say kind or wise, or, you know, words. But then you read the Gospels a bit more carefully, you think, well, what was the reaction of people to Jesus? What words were used in the text? Or, or clearly, you could deduce from the text, because you can see what other reactions people had. And you come up with words like, amazing. They were amazed. He taught authoritatively. He was unpredictable. He was challenging. He was controversial. And here's one. He was entertaining. Where, where, does it, where it says, the people heard him gladly. Well, they wouldn't have heard him gladly unless they enjoyed it. 
they? They enjoyed it. And, and so you begin to start to fill out a picture of just what was he, just what was he like as a man on the earth. So one way into this, let, let me make a statement that sometimes Christians have found a bit shocking, but historically it's obviously true. Jesus was not a Christian. Have you ever thought that? Have you ever made that observation that Jesus was not a Christian? Jesus was a Jew. He was born a Jew, he was raised a Jew, he lived a Jew. He died as king of the Jews. The word Christian had not yet been invented when Jesus walked on the earth. So, I know it's a bit deliberately provocative, isn't it? But you think about, oh, Jesus, wasn't, Jesus was a Jew. And to his contemporaries and to the people who observed him in his ministry, none of them thought he was trying to introduce a new religion. Nobody thought that he was trying to introduce Christianity. What they thought he was doing was reforming Judaism in quite a radical way, of course. But that was the, the perception of him. He was trying to reform the Jews and the Jewish faith. He wasn't about introducing a new religion as far as they were concerned. Um, and of course, you know, when he appeared, nobody leapt to the conclusion that he was the son of God. He was perceived as a prophet. And you can see that as you read through the Gospels. When Jesus said to the disciples, who do men say that I am? Well, John the Baptist, because John the Baptist was seen as a prophet. Or Elijah, the great prophet. Or one of the prophets, that's what the disciples say to him. The people see you're a prophet. And even in that strange moment after the resurrection, the famous story on the road to Emmaus, where Jesus encounters the two disciples. I trust you know this story, isn't it? It's a wonderful story, the road to Emmaus. So... They, they're talking to him, and he says to them, well, what, what is it you're talking about? And they say to him, well, we're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And these were the disciples. These two people were his disciples. He was a prophet, mighty in word and deed. And um, you will know that you'll think, well, Andrew, when, when, when the disciples said that about, you know, what the people are saying, then Peter said to him, you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And then Jesus says, but don't say that to anybody. Why? Why did he say that? Well, because the Messiah was the king of the Jews, and Palestine was occupied by the Romans, and anybody standing up to claim, to be, claim themselves to be king would have got the chop, wouldn't they? I mean, that's the historical context of Jesus' ministry. Yes, the Jews were occupied by the Romans, and anybody claiming to be a king of any shape or form, well, that was it. That was treason. That was treason. So, having said that, this gives you the, a key insight into the Gospels, that Jesus didn't go around telling people who he actually was. Because in human terms, it would have just led to his instant death, not in the way that God planned it. So, and of course, the other thing was that the Jews were thinking that when the Messiah did come, they were expecting this great military ruler who would drive the Romans out. So their concepts of Messiah was entirely different to what Jesus was seeking to do. They were expecting uh, a king 
that would raise up a great Jewish army and drive out the Romans um, and establish a, a new temple and worship um, and make Israel top nation. Make Israel top nation. That's, that's, what, they, that's what they were hoping for in, in earthly, political, military terms. That's what they were, that's what they were expecting. So you can see that Jesus had a quite different agenda to what was the expectation of the people that he was speaking to in those Galilean villages and hilltops and so on and so forth. So one, one question which I found helpful in, in pondering these things, I picked up a book about a year ago. I, I came across a book and I bought it for its title. Have you ever done that? Sometimes you're so intrigued by the title, I won't bother. I'll just buy it for the title. It looks good. It looks good. And the title of the book was The Aims of Jesus. The Aims of Jesus. And I just found, oh, isn't that an intriguing? I've never come across that phrase before. The Aims of Jesus. What was Jesus trying to do? What was he seeking to do? Now, you may think, well, Andrew, that's an obvious. It's obvious. You know, we all know that. We're all educated Christians. And you may quote 1 Corinthians 15 to me and say, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That was Jesus' aim. And of course you would be right, praise God. But it makes you think a bit more about what he saw himself doing. Um, so to try to... Um, Let's, let's, let's try to think of what that meant in terms of how he taught and the miracles that he did and the company that he kept. So, uh, Jesus' life took place within a story, the story of Israel. Um, it's kind of important to say that, isn't it? Again, that's a kind of an obvious thing, but... But if somebody said to you, well, why wasn't Jesus born Chinese or a Russian or, a, or, or, or an Uzbek or an Afghan? Jesus was born, as I said, a Jew in Israel, and he lived within the story of Israel. Now, as I said, they were ex expecting a Messiah to come as a great military leader, but that was part of a story that God, through the patriarchs and the prophets, was going to bring his kingdom on earth, if I could short-circuit it in a bit of a way. He was going to bring his kingdom on earth. They lived in the expectation of this kingdom. As I said, they may have a slightly wrong idea of what the kingdom was going to look like, but they expected that, this, that there was a kingdom coming. And, and, and when John the Baptist came on the scene, he said, it's coming now, you better get ready. And then... When, as it was, we read had in the reading, when John was put in prison, Jesus came and had said basically the same thing, repent and believe. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven is near, or the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near. You need to get ready. So Jesus, his whole ministry begins within the context of this story of Israel. And what he's basically saying is this story is coming to a climax a climax of judgment and a climax of redemption. You need to be ready for it because the kingdom is near. The kingdom is near. Now, 
you can see with the way that Mark starts his gospel, why I chose that reading, is in those first 15 verses of Mark, you get the Spirit descending, the voice of God. Jesus goes out to do battle with Satan. The angels are with him. It's all pretty supernatural stuff, isn't it? And you're only 15 verses in, and all this heavenly stuff is going off. Why? Because the kingdom is coming near, isn't it? Heaven is breaking in. That's what Mark is Heaven is breaking in. Jesus is on the planet. <laughs> Heaven is breaking in. Stuff is happening. Repent. Believe it. Believe it. So this is the context for his ministry. So let me just make a couple of sort of not digressions, but I can't dwell on these things at length. So if you think about Jesus' teaching then, I mean, the naive view, if I can put it like this, the naive view, of course, for people who are perhaps not believers, is, well, Jesus was another great moral teacher. You know, Jesus was a great moral teacher, uh, you know, like Confucius or, or Buddha or Socrates or whoever, you know, Jesus. We should, read, we should read the Bible, yes, it's good, because it will give our children, you know, good moral lessons for life. But when you read Jesus' teaching, if I may put it like this, it's not hugely about morality. I mean, in a sense, the Jews had the morality in the Ten Commandments. When Jesus said, love your neighbour, that's a precious and wonderful thing to say, but it wasn't exactly original. What, what, as you read Jesus' teaching, you, of course, realise that most of it is in parables, and the parables are not primarily moral teaching. The parables are primarily about announcing something, the kingdom. So most of the parables start, the kingdom of heaven is like, isn't it? Do you, you think of it when you read about the parables? The kingdom of heaven is like this. He's not just talking about morality. He's talking about like an event is going to happen. Something is going to happen and it will look like this. Do you see what I mean? It, it, I hope it's not proving too provocative, but you see what I mean? It's not, it's not just conventional morality. It's not just teaching people ethics. It's telling them that God is going to do something. It's challenging them about their attitude towards God. And, and when you, 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 So you take the parable of the prodigal son. For example, just go away and think about that tonight. It's not primarily a story about morals, is it? It's a story that reveals something about God and how we respond to God. That's what it's primarily about, isn't it? It's about how the prodigal son responded to his father and how the other son kind of resisted the father. The, the parables challenge people more about their attitude to Jesus than whether or not they're living a moral life. And then if you take the miracles, let me just say this about the miracles. Again, the naive view is, um, well, why did Jesus do miracles? Oh, because the miracles proved he was the Son of God. Well, you read the Gospels, and it's pretty clear that he wasn't doing miracles to prove he was the Son of God. I mean, if you really wanted to do miracles to prove you were the Son of God, you would have stood in the marketplace in Capernaum, wouldn't you? You would have lined up some blind, deaf, and dumb people. You would have gone down the line. You would have healed them all. And then you would have said, how about that? Aren't you impressed don't you think that I'm now the Son of God? Vote for me. I mean, to be facetious about it. But he didn't do miracles like that, did he? He did miracles not so much to point to himself, but to point to God. To say, 
look, God's power is being released on the earth. Do you see what I mean? He was showing that the miracles demonstrated the kingdom was coming. There was a kingdom coming, not to kind of prove his divinity to people in some kind of crude manner. Um, and, and that's why, of course, there are the exorcisms in the Gospels, because he's showing that there is a spiritual conflict going on, and he is, as he says at one point, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, by the finger of God, it's the kind, same kind of point I'm making. He says, look, I've just driven out a demon, that proves that I'm the son of God. He says, oh, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom of God is near. You see where he's coming where he's coming from in it. So we tend to focus a bit on Jesus' teaching of miracles, but of course, the other thing that you notice as you read through the Gospels is that Jesus is forming a community. Jesus is forming a community. So he's calling the disciples. We read the story of the calling of the twelve. But of course, he called other people, and he called people that got him into trouble. He called people who were the tax collectors, who were the kind of most hated people in, in society because they were collaborators with the Romans. And then he, he seems to have allowed certain women into his presence who were, for want of a better phrase, of dubious reputation. And, and he gets, he gets criticised by the Pharisees for this, doesn't he? And he comes up with that wonderful line where he says to them, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So... So Jesus has come to call this, this group of, um, I, was, I mean, to exaggerate the point, almost undesirables, isn't it? I mean, if you were going to start a great world movement, would you start with a bunch of Galilean fishermen? Probably not. But that's what Jesus decided to do. He forms this, he forms this community of people. And... Um, he even allows at times himself to be in contact with Gentiles rather than Jews. That's another story in a way, isn't it? Because that was seen as a bit sort of weird thing to do as well within his culture. But he, he makes the point, he creates a community whose identity is shaped around their relationship to him. Now that in itself was quite radical within his days because for the Jews, their identity was shaped around their observance of the law, their pilgrimages to Jerusalem. But the defining thing about the community of people around Jesus was their loyalty to him personally. So when, he, when, he is, um, when his mother and brothers uh, come to see him because they think he's, he's doing a load of crazy stuff, really, and they want to get him out of it. And you know, you know the story? He's in the house, and they say, your mother and brothers are outside. And he says to them, he looks around at all the people that he's talking to, and he says, but these people are my mothers and brothers and sisters, those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, that was, we miss the radicalness of that statement in a society where family identity was, was, was an absolutely crucial part of life. I mean, we've weakened that in our Western society. But to say to a Jew at that time that, um, as it, implying that their loyalty to Christ transcended their loyalty to their family, that was a, that was a dramatic claim. That was a dramatic claim to make. It's still challenging to us today, isn't it? This, I mean, most of us as Christians have at some point in our lives, realised a tension or a conflict between our faith and people in our family. 
where we think Jesus has got to come first in this situation. So Jesus, in establishing this community around him, as we see it develop in the course of the Gospels, um, is, is creating um, like a new, if I can lead it, like a new Israel, a new people of God, which is formed on a different basis, as I've said. It's formed on a basis of relationship to him, or to kind of move the story on a bit, if you think of it in terms of Jeremiah's prophecy where he said, this is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll put the law in their minds and in their hearts. I will do something, the word we would use is spiritually. I will do something spiritually. Jesus was doing something spiritually. So, as I said at the beginning, while they were all looking for an earthly kingdom, an earthly kingdom of human power, Jesus was on a completely different agenda. He was seeking to bring in a spiritual kingdom, a spiritual transformation. And, the, and not only was he going to try and seek to bring in that kind of kingdom, but he was bringing it in in a way that none of them had anticipated through suffering and death. And this is the great mystery, isn't it? So my, um, you chose the right song to start with, didn't you, really? Meekness and majesty. Oh, what a, oh, what a mystery. Oh, oh, what a mystery. They couldn't grasp it, could they? They couldn't grasp it. You know, Jesus, Jesus prophesied his death, um, but they couldn't grasp it. Um, it's not surprising in a way that Jesus prophesied his death because he was getting into trouble, wasn't he? He, he knew as he was in trouble. He had the Pharisees breathing down his neck. He had the Sadducees criticizing him. He had the Herodians spying on him. You know, when he went up to Jerusalem, cleansed the temple, he, he, was, he, he was instigating a kind of crescendo between how Israel would respond to him or how its leaders would respond to him or not. And, and then we have the story of the passion where in the, and it's just the amazing things in it he conquers by dying how, how do you do that he conquers by he conquers by dying but it is significant in what i'm saying that on the cross in some amazingly way you know pilate decided to put on the cross the king of the jews the king of the jews isn't it that's that, that, that deeply ironic moment in the gospels that Jesus, the rejected Messiah, is crucified under the heading, the King of the Jews. That is a, that's a sermon in itself, Paul, isn't it, really? <laughs> we could give it another, that we could give it another time. So, uh, just to bring this, sum this up, seeing, trying to see the Jesus of history through the, as it were, the eyes of his contemporaries, the meaning of the, t- of the time, and how in his life and death, Jesus, uh, put it like this, he redefined the Jewish hope of the kingdom. He lived within the story of that coming kingdom, but he redefined it and he inaugurated it through his life and death. And he transformed the understanding of humanity as to what the kingdom of God might look like. So, you know, and, uh, before he came 
The one God was the God of the Jews only. After Jesus, the church realized that he was the God of the whole world. They were expecting a militant Messiah. He brought them a suffering Messiah. The, at the time of Jesus, the mission of God was just to the land of Israel. Post the resurrection, it was a mission to the whole globe. Before Jesus, holiness was all about keeping the laws and the regulations. After Jesus, holiness was about living in the spirit and in the fruit of the spirit. Before Jesus, entering the kingdom could only come about by being born a Jew. After Jesus, entering the kingdom came about by being born of the Spirit. Before Jesus, God's presence on the earth was confined in a way to the temple, in the Holy of Holies. After Jesus, God's presence was released into the whole world through the Spirit. Before Jesus, if you had a pilgrimage in life, you went up to the earthly Jerusalem. Now our pilgrimage in life is towards a heavenly Jerusalem. You see what he's done, isn't it? He's completely sort of redefined that hope and understanding. And that's, what the early, and that's why the early church worshipped him. The early church worshipped him. They didn't just meet together to study the parables, if I could put it like that, did they? They didn't just meet together to study Jesus. They met together to worship Jesus, as we have done this morning, because they realized that God had revealed himself in his Son, that he had created a, not just a national community, he had created a universal community of the church, but a church in which every human being, whatever their past, whatever their social status could be included within that community. He opened the door to that. And he, he made it clear that if we are to follow him, we have to follow him in the same kind of path because the world remains an evil place. The world remains in many ways opposed to God. So to follow him means that we too take up our cross. Because as Christians like Christ, we're not trying to conquer the world by violence. We're trying to conquer the world by love and peace. And that takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of time and a lot of grace. So um, let's not be overdramatic about it. You know, uh, I'm leaving Solihull. What would I like to say to, Sol to the people in Solihull before I kind of uh, depart? <laughs> what would I like to say to the churches? Uh, I thought, what I'd like to say to churches is, is look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And um, spend more time considering him. Buy the film of St. Matthew's Gospel. You'll really like it. I'll give you a commendation. Yeah? But read about it. Read about it. There, it's an endless, it's endless, isn't it? Reading and considering and praying understanding more of who Christ was and to realize that we are not just members of a local church, we are members of this kingdom that has permeated its way across the earth and gathered in people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And that kingdom, in its kind of, as Jesus said, in its secret way continues to transform the world, doesn't it? transforms the world. That gospel continues to transform the lives of men and women, spiritually transforming them to be the children of God. And what a privilege to be part of that. Yes? What a privilege to be part of that. Amen.
Amen. Amen.